You're listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high growth and high values ventures. I am your host, Miles Lasseter, three-time founder turned investor. Join us to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Join us to be inspired to be a founder or to work for a startup. Join us to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. Welcome to Startups for Good. I'm your host, Miles Lasseter. On today's episode, I speak with Tara Viswanathan, who is the CEO and founder of Rupa Health, an integrative health tech company that aims to make root cause medicine the standard of care. Their first product, Rupa Labs, is a lab ordering portal for telemedicine providers that turns 15 hours of weekly physician admin work into 15 minutes. Rupa is headquartered in San Francisco and backed by world-class investors like First Round Capital, Floodgate Capital, Ron Conway, SV Angel, and of course, Purpose Built Ventures, which is me. Tara has a BS from Wharton and an MS from Stanford and spent the last 15 years passionate about helping people make better health-related decisions from working hands-on with chronically ill patients to becoming a certified nutrition counselor to designing Stanford research experiments on the mind-body connection. She's developed deep experience across the health space throughout her career. Previously, she worked at Parsley Health, Lululemon, and at the Stanford D School. On this episode, we talk about Rupa's origin and her vision for the company, what product market fit really feels like, tips on hiring and scaling, and ethical sales as a founder, plus some fundraising advice. I think you'll enjoy this, so stay tuned. All right, welcome to Startups for Good. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Miles. Great to be here. I'm excited to dive into your story of Rupa and before. Why don't we start with how did you decide to become a founder? Miles, I wish I had a really good answer for this, but I don't. I think it's something that I've always known. I was even, I'm reading this book called The Artist's Way. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's it's kind of a classic at this point. It essentially talks about the artist's journey and you know creativity and things like that. And one of the things it's had me do is, and it's kind of a workbook, is think about my childhood. And, and the question I was reflecting on yesterday, actually, was what was it that I loved doing as a kid? And the only thing I could come up with was creating. I was always just making things. So whether it was like clothing for my dolls or, you know, making and selling duct tape purses or whatever it was, it was always creating. So what made me decide to be a founder? I have no idea. I I think it's probably this innate urge to create. And then also on the other end of that is probably a fear of being constrained in any way. That's fascinating. Also learning a little bit about your background, it seems like you've bridged worlds uh, from math and art um, to others. Is that part of it as well? Yeah, I I absolutely think so. Um, I I feel like I've always straddled multiple different um, worlds, as, as you put it, is probably a good way to think about it. Growing up as an Indian American in West Texas is one of them. And then, you know, studying finance at Wharton while also learning art, you know, is another one. And I think it's just because I'm, I'm curious. I'm, I'm incredibly curious. And I, my brain works the best 
when I am exploring and I'm putting things together, I've learned that I'm definitely a systems thinker. I'm not, I'm not great at just linear thinking. I'm, I'm much better at bringing things from different industries. And, you know, that definitely gets us into Rupa, right? Where we're talking about um, bridging the gap between maybe like alternative or Western or lifestyle, sorry, alternative or holistic or lifestyle medicine, along with uh, conventional medicine as we see it today. Yeah. So how do you weave that together at Rupa? Yeah, great question. Um, well, I guess the basis of Rupa is how do we create, you know, allow for root cause medicine, which is understanding the root cause of a person's illness rather than slapping on band-aids for the symptoms. How do we actually make that the standard of care versus what it seems to be today, which is a healthcare system that is guided by just masking the symptoms or band-aiding the symptoms with pharmaceuticals and, and things like that, how do we actually achieve true health from a root cause perspective? And what we're seeing is actually that it's already being done. So we're seeing these incredible physicians from Stanford and these highly reputable hospitals and institutions starting to weave in more holistic methods. So things like nutrition and lifestyle and diet and exercise and all of that. And so it's just bridging these two worlds in a way where one's not right and one's not wrong, but it's how do we utilize the best from both. And what's your first product? So our first product is the lab portal. What we're doing is we're taking something that our physicians are already doing, which is utilizing specialty lab tests, such as, you know, DNA testing, microbiome testing, advanced hormone testing, things that your traditional Western doctor isn't going to order for you. And, you know, and, and we're making that process super simple for our practitioners. So what we do is we're almost like a marketplace for these new kind of specialty labs. And why don't quote unquote Western doctors order these labs? That's a great question. They're starting to. Um, but it, it's because it, they haven't been trained to do so, right? So there's, it's funny because we think about, I, I, you know, we've gotten to a place where maybe this is how humanity has always been. And this is me getting into like my philosophical side, but we're getting to a place where we believe things, like we know everything, right? I think like our society believes like we know everything or science can solve everything. But in fact, there's a lot we don't know, especially about humans and our health and our world. And we forget that science starts with a hypothesis and then people testing that hypothesis. And I think it's nuts to think that suddenly we've, you know, we find ourselves in this world where testing hypotheses and asking questions is, is kind of no longer okay. And so when you ask why don't Western doctors utilize this testing, it's because I think we're still in the, you know, it's in the post hypothesis, but pre mass acceptance phase. And if you think about it, doctors are getting educated when they're, you know, 22 to 26, and then they're not going back to medical school again. And so even though they're doing continuing education, the core is of the, the core they're learning is of the medical knowledge um, that they learned during med school. And if you, as you can imagine, the tremendous advancements we've done in genetics, in microbiome research and things like that, most of the doctors today did not have that when they were going through medical school. And I think that that's part of what is going on. 
And this has been an incredible demand and the growth is really impressive. It attracted me as an investor, uh, top tier venture capitalists. How did you come upon this as an opportunity? Oh yeah, Miles, I think it's, uh, I actually think that it's been a lifelong journey. Um, it's been a quest for how do I feel alive in every moment? Um, I think as a kid, I was really drawn to feeling joyful and feeling alive. I actually, uh, you know, I did cancer research in high school and um, studied genetics in high school, but I actually lost that when I went to college. And um, I mentioned I studied finance at Wharton. It's it's really funny because, you know, I say that I uh, I studied finance, but what I really learned was burnout. And so, <laughs> yeah, it's like, that's where I realized that there's, there's so much more to health than just looking good or, you know, or surviving. And it was my journey to figure that out. And so that's what I um, came over to the West Coast to do. I ended up studying product design for better health at Stanford. It was something I made up. I don't think that you can go look that up. They, they were very generous and let me figure that out or, or let me do that. It was kind of one thing led to another. I mean, part of it was like right place, right time. I got to Stanford at a time where they, I think that was the first year that they were having all of their medical residents take a meditation course. And I got to, I got to do that with them. I studied nutrition there. I got to practice like life coaching for grad students. And, and what happened was there was this massive movement towards wellness and holistic health. And I got to work at some pretty incredible companies, you know, that were building for this kind of new wave of medicine. And ultimately the thing that tipped me over the edge was when my mom got sick and I'm not a doctor, but I was able to help her with the knowledge that I gained. And my dad, who is a, you know, traditional Western medicine doctor was not able to help her and had no tools to help her. And so that was really the turning point for me. That's powerful. Share with us a little bit about the journey of Rupa and, and the scale that you reach now. Yeah, the, um, the journey of Rupa, lots of learnings and lots of ups and downs. I, I think the thing that drove us to, and there, there were so many moments when we, we could have, and I think it made maybe logical sense to quit and go in a different direction. And the reason that we didn't is because we had utter belief in this market. It, by this market, I mean the demand for better health treatment, for especially for chronically ill patients. And what we're seeing amongst this, I guess, this like epidemic in, in the U.S. of obesity and diabetes and, you know, metabolic syndrome and all of that, but then also mental health and kind of issues that are plaguing people who are, I, I don't know, I, I think about them as like walking around as like hidden chronic illness people. So a lot of my friends who are high performers and high achievers who are suffering and not feeling super well, those people as well. And so I think it's this belief that there needs to be a better way that's driven this, but our journey was a lot of twists and turns. I mean, we started out as a marketplace for integrative practitioners. So a marketplace for acupuncturists, naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, people like that. We learned you know, maybe a little bit too slow. Like it always feels like we learn too slowly, but in, in hindsight, it was a little bit, it was quick that that a marketplace doesn't make sense. We then shifted into building a full stack clinic. So it was a virtual care clinic for integrative holistic practitioners. It was almost like a Shopify experience. And that's where we discovered the problem of lab testing. 
And I think through this journey, I've been at enough startups that never found that product market fit or that never found that, you know, 10x better thing that people are just craving and demanding to know that we needed to find it. And so for us, it was the quest of, yeah, we know this is a growing market, but what is the tool that we can latch ourselves onto that we can, that we can then grow from there. And that's how we came up with labs. And what does that product market fit feel like? Oh, totally different. It's like, it's kind of like how I think about finding your life partner, right? If you have to ask like, you know, am I in love with this person? And is this my person? It's probably not your person. And so like, similarly with product market, if you have to ask, if if you're like, do we have product market fit? You probably don't have it. I mean, it's kind of this overwhelming experience where we, the first version of this had nothing. It was a fake front end experience where practitioners could go order lab tests. And then what would happen is my co-founder and I were sitting on our couch. The company was just us at that point. And we would wait until someone would place an order. And then placing an order meant that Rosa and I got an email that said, this person wants this test to this patient. And we would then immediately, you know, ask each other, okay, are you going to do this one? Or am I going to do this one? We'd go create a PayPal invoice. We'd call up the lab, place the order manually, and we'd just like send it all out. And we created a Google doc with instructions on how to take the test. And that was it. And people were coming back to that, uh, you know, week over week. And so that's when we realized, and they were sharing it with their friends. I think that's one of the biggest keys is people sharing it organically with their friends. Yeah. We had Tiffany on the show, who's founder and CEO of Remix. She talked about her product market fit situation and really how powerful it can be when people just keep asking for it over and over again. So it's a wonderful yeah. feeling, I'm sure. Yeah. And we started, and people started writing about us. I mean, I think a month after we launched and we had no splashy launch, we to date have not done any kind of press or PR, anything like that. Um, and this was about, this was a year ago. And when we released the product, I mean, it was to three practitioners in the Bay Area. And within a few weeks, I think it was like three weeks, we had, I had the attention of two of the biggest players in our space, um, cold emailing me, asking to, to meet up. And so it was just, it, it just spread. And I think that uh, the other thing is, I think people are very forgiving of maybe an imperfect experience if you have product market fit. So you're saying if they really need the problem solved, they'll take a half-baked solution. Yeah, yeah. And the goal is not to have keep them at a half-baked solution. But I mean, it's kind of like comical, right? I, I, We still don't have a way, this is a year later and thousands of patients later, um, we still don't have a way for a doctor to change their email address in this product or edit that. Like, it's just like, there's so many things that are missing, but they're still using it. And how many people are using it? We, we have practitioners in um, all across the U.S. We're legally not allowed to be in a couple states for billing purposes, but we have practitioners across the U.S. using us, hundreds of them. We have um, in thousands of patients, and we actually very quickly grew to, from prototype to like multi-million annualized GMV in just a few months, which sounds crazy, Miles, but I think the thing that people are missing is that it was, you know, two years in the making for this company and maybe eight years in the making of my understanding of this industry. So it was by no means an overnight success. 
how did you manage that scaling? So when you had that incredible demand popping up for this new product, it's the two of you sitting on the couch. What do you do? Well, and then COVID hit, right? Wow. Yeah. We had no idea what was going to happen. No idea. And um, what ended up happening was our market serves chronically ill patients and chronically ill patients are still going to go see their doctor. And so we weren't really affected, but we didn't know that in the beginning. What we did was just, as soon as we were out of capacity, we just brought on another person. I mean, it was like, if you can imagine, this is mid-January of last year is when we released the product. February, like very quickly, a couple of weeks in, we realized we were maybe hitting product market fit. And at this point, still only a handful of people were using it, but they were telling their friends and we were just trying to work out the kinks. And then COVID hit. And what happened was our labs all started getting worried and they, I ended up, I didn't know what was going to happen to our industry. And so what I did was I just called up all of our lab reps to see if they had any insight into what was going to happen. And so I just, I think one thing people don't realize is like, you can, people don't have to give you answers, but if you ask, they might give you answers. And so I, you know, a lot of people are like, wait, you called your lab companies to ask for their proprietary data. I'm like, yeah, if they, if they gave it to me, great. So, so I called them our lab reps and they actually shared a ton of information about how they saw the industry going, what they thought was going to happen. And it turned out that they ended up laying off a good chunk of their staff. And so one of the women at one of our labs was um, had been the most incredible sales rep that I'd worked with to the point where she knew this industry inside and out. And I had called her for sales advice and she was um, going to give me a sales lesson. And I mean, she's, you know, 20, I want to, I want to say like, she was 22 right out of college, but just that like hustler personality who is, who is absolutely incredible. And then COVID hit and she messages me and she's like, Hey, I'm sorry, I can't make our meeting. I got, you know, I no longer work at this company. And that I, I called her maybe five minutes later and I said, okay, how would you like to come work for us? And just hired her on the spot. And now she's managing a team of, uh, of like six people and doing incredible things. And, and how we grew and how we scaled was literally that. It was identifying people who will just go above and beyond and do amazing things and move mountains and then hiring them immediately. You've been doing a lot of interviewing recently. How do you like to do it? Um, I love interviewing. I think it's so fun getting to meet people. Building a team is absolutely one of the most rewarding parts of this. I think that, yes, Rupa is my calling in so many ways. And the type of business that we're building and the industry we're building it in is personally very fulfilling for me. But then there's this, also this other component of just building a business and building a team that I absolutely love. And so well, we talked about this a little bit, but one thing that's always driven me is this idea of living one life where there really is not um, boundaries between work and life and home and all of that. And I know that can be controversial now, especially as people talk about um, making sure that you do have boundaries between these different things. But I actually think that there's a better flow state for me personally. And one which I think about as I think about growing our team, which is this fluidity between different aspects of life and feeling like your work is providing support for your personal life and vice versa. And how do we make all these puzzle pieces fit together? And 
for me, that's what recruiting is. It's building a team that can support that kind of culture and make amazing things happen. And so that has been truly like one of the most enjoyable parts of this whole thing. So you're saying that candidates get to know you personally before joining the company? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, we just hired someone last week and you know, it's like weird times in COVID and I had him over and cooked and like barbecued for him outside last Friday night. So that that's definitely part of it. Yeah. One of the things I think is important in hiring is giving people a realistic understanding of the risks and potential downsides. I remember when we would interview for people at my first startup, I would always give them a spiel that we could go out of business and it may not work. And I wanted people to hear it from me, not just the vision and the excitement, but also real acknowledgement of the downside. Actually, that, that's such a great point. Two of the things that I say upfront in any interview is I don't sell people on startups and I don't sell people on um, the type of like medicine that we are, are building for and what, what our vision is. Because I think that if people aren't internally motivated to come for those reasons, it's only a ticking time bomb if I try to convince them of that and then they come on board later. My goal in that first call is to just share information and, ha- and listen to the person on the other end sharing information to see if it's a mutual fit. And I think startup fit is like one of the most important things. Like, is this person really ready to join an early stage startup? Don't just listen, get engaged. I host a giving circle to support startup tech nonprofits. Why do they need support and why is it hard? Well, think about all of the challenges of a nonprofit startup where only 2% ever make it to more than 10 million in annual budget and all of the challenges of a tech company in building a team, understanding users, figuring out what to build and architecting the right product. So why does it matter? Well, think of the established large tech nonprofits that impact your life. Mozilla makes Firefox and other important internet infrastructure. Wikipedia collects and distributes knowledge. Code for America makes our government work better. Code.org and Khan Academy teaches us all. In healthcare, Medic Mobile powers living goods and other local community healthcare workers. So go to startupsforgood.com and click on Giving Circle to find out more. I'd be curious to get your opinion on vaporware and selling when your product isn't fully ready. It's a great question. Like to customers or to employees or both? I was actually shifting gears now and thinking more customer side. Customer side. I think that it really depends on the market, the industry, all of that, and the level to which you're doing vaporware. So for example, before we actually had Rupa built out, we had the idea for the lab platform. And there was this big annual conference, December of 2019. And remember we released this product like mid January, 2020. So maybe a month before we were not gonna have the product ready. We just had this idea. And so Rosa and I were thinking, you know, we also didn't have any money. It's not like we had millions of dollars in the bank and we could easily fly to Vegas and go to a conference. We'd never done anything like that before. But we thought, let's just go see what happens if we meet people there. And what we did is we created a, we like bought iPads at Best Buy that we were planning on returning if we didn't need them anymore. 
and we created like a demo that was not working, but it was just a demo video. And we created business cards. And I mean, we did the whole thing. We, we'd sold vaporware. Like now I'm thinking about it. We definitely did this. And we went to the conference and it was hilarious because everybody was staying at the Venetian like $250 a night. They'd bought multi-thousand dollar tickets. And Rosa and I stayed at Circus Circus for 20 bucks a night and walked over down the strip every morning and bought like, we somehow finangled like student tickets. We, I mean, we did the whole thing, right? And that conference, like, if we hadn't gone and sold the vision of what we were doing, we would not have the labs on board that we needed or even the initial insights that we needed to get off the ground. So as I'm in, in answer to your question, I actually think it's really important, but I think that there's so much context in there. Like, I don't think that we would have ever done something that felt unethical to us at that point. And so in terms of, you know, taking people's money or promising things that we couldn't fulfill or whatnot, there's a fine line. But to some extent, I think it is a founder's role to make something out of nothing and to know how to sequence that. And so, yeah. What do you think? Yeah, I agree with you that it's often a necessary part of building a company is being able to sell a vision ahead of what has already been built. I think there are red lines in terms of when you talk about facts, if someone says, well, is it built yet? You answer honestly, right? If you're taking someone's money and not being clear about your ability to deliver, that can be a problem. But showing someone a demo and saying, this is what we're working on, this is what we're building and getting feedback, I think that's the nature of product development and the nature of entrepreneurship. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I think it's it's definitely a fine line because um, one of the best pieces of advice I've gotten from one of our advisors who I respect enormously was, he said, Tara, in any negotiation or sale, determine what you want to tell the other person and then go make that a reality before you go tell them. I oh, like, I love it. Isn't that, isn't that amazing feedback? It's like, and so for example, and the way he, he was saying, if you need to have a board of advisors in your negotiation that you can blame things on, say, I need to go check with my board of advisors, go actually make that board of advisors because ultimately at the end of the day, whatever you say will be exposed. And so you need to be able to stand by what you say. Yeah, when you're getting into negotiation and things like that, I really don't think that negotiating requires you to dissemble, to lie. I think a great book that talks about how you can be really transparent and still negotiate really well is called Getting More. Uh, so mm. you Penn professor, I think, who wrote that book. Which one was it? I actually TA'd negotiations. In I'm that. embarrassed oh. enough to say I can't remember his name now. Was it Sh Richard Shaw or was it Blum? If it was Blum, I actually was his TA. Oh, really? That was one of the classes that totally changed my life when I realized that everything in life is a negotiation and you don't have to be exactly as you're saying, like unethical power player, any of that. Well, I'm looking it up now. It's Diamond, Stuart Diamond. Okay. I don't know him, but that's amazing. Uh, I, I highly recommend that book. I've read a bunch of books on negotiation. And I also subscribe to uh, Sam Harris's philosophy on lying, which is basically almost never do it. I mean, you have to have extreme, extreme cases of threatened violence before it really makes sense. So maybe a little far afield. But you were talking about the concept of making it true before you enter negotiation. 
I wonder if you applied that to your fundraising strategy. Yes. I, and I guess this goes back into my like larger life philosophy of, I think the most important thing to invest in is your, is a, is your belief about yourself and your confidence in yourself. And I think anytime you stretch the truth or you tell a white lie or whatever it is, you are undermining your belief in yourself and your confidence in yourself. And ultimately that is the stuff that will catch you and will make you not succeed. So when it comes to fundraising, yeah, like I, I mean, I think that's especially in that super small investor community. I only like, I only stick to the strictest like truth. However, when- Yeah, I didn't just mean in truth, but I was talking also about the idea of building what you want to be selling. Oh yeah, of course, of course. You got, you got to do that. I think that's honestly, Miles, just like doing a startup. You, whatever you want to go say to your customers, you need to make sure that that is true. Whatever we want to go say out to investors, hey, our, you know, our retention rate is X, Y, Z. Okay, if it's not there, we need to go get it there or we need to figure out why it's not there or we need to go find the metrics that we do want to share. Absolutely. Do you have any other advice for founders on fundraising? Oh my gosh, I so much advice. I think that I got really lucky by being surrounded by some like incredible fundraisers and people who've given me advice. Um, I think it's particularly diff- difficult for women because I tend to think that women give each other bad advice around fundraising. And I hate saying that, but I, I do think it's true where the advice I got from women versus men was vastly different around fundraising. By the way, if any women are listening to this, I'm happy to, to talk or guide or do whatever I can. When it comes to fundraising, as with anything about a startup, it literally is just about momentum. And how do you create momentum and how, you know, how do you play into human behavior? Say more. <laughs> it's like, so I also think that at the early stages, it's very different than at later stages. At early stages, you are primarily selling yourself and you're sharing stories. And so, and, and this is true for any kind of marketing, right? For any kind of marketing, what you're trying to do is you're trying to take the person who is in front of you likely needs to go justify the decision they're about to make with everybody else in their team. So when you think about like a fundraise, it's maybe you're talking to a partner and they need to go convince the rest of their team that you're worth investing. And so they're constantly looking for those tidbits and check marks that they can go back and share. Similarly, if you're trying to hire a candidate, that candidate is looking for things that they can take back and go tell their friends and family who care about them saying like, I know that you guys think I should go do something more safe and stable, but I think this is the best decision because of X, Y, Z, here are the reasons why. And basically your job as the founder is to create and list out those reasons very clearly for your audience that they can go back. So that can be, and I think people, people don't focus enough on personal stories that are catchy in their fundraise. For example, if I'm going to do a fundraise, I think too many people fall into the trap of here's our problem, here's our market, here's our vision, here's our team, and here's what we're raising, right? And here's our traction maybe. What, and that's, that's what you'll mostly get. What is missing from that is the, the, the key little nugget of wisdom that says more about who you are and how you operate than, than anything in that deck. So for example, something like um, one of my friends who's actually a 
fund, who actually I'm going to introduce you to because he's about to start fundraising. One of the things that he did, he's incredible at is reaching out to people who you think that he would never be able to get in contact with and sell them on his vision. So I think he reached out to a former COO of Twitter on Twitter through a DM, told him about what he was doing. And now the former COO is like mentoring him on how to, you know, how to do a fundraise. And it's like little stories like that, that you want to share. And obviously not that one to, to investors, but with the person you're selling so that they can go share that with other people. Cause that's what people want to talk about. And like for us, those were little stories of people showing actual screenshots of what people had said about our product in response to a cold email. Like they said, like, you are the answer to my prayers. And then people remember that. And then they go share that with their entire team. That's me rambling. But does that make sense? Yeah, I think what you're saying is, remember that people have a hidden dimension. They have a set of people who may be explicit, uh, approval, um, you know, have approval override rights, or implicitly, they're looking for their approval. And arm the person you're talking to, to be able to sell to their audience. Uh, not just selling the person you're talking to, but give them the stories that will be memorable enough that they can pass on to their audience. Yes. And then one other thing I think is really critical that people just forget is to be nice. (laughs) (laughs) I think people like people who like them, right? And so if you can just be really kind and make everybody like be genuinely interested in the people you're talking to um, and care about them and their life and what their wants and needs are. So if you're a founder and you're meeting an investor, take time to learn about their life and what, you know, what they've done. And that will go a long way. And, and people forget about that. Good advice. So as you were making these fundraising pitches, I'm sure you had to talk about the long-term vision, or as you've been hiring people, you talked about the long-term vision of Rupa. What is it? Things go well? What's it like? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Um, The sky's the limit. Like I have visions of Rupa actually like creating a brand new medical journal that is focused on this like root cause perspective and how do we incorporate all of these other dimensions of health that is not just going to the, what going to the doctor looks like today. I believe that Rupa will be the metabrain layer for primary care and beyond in terms of this person is coming to me. How do I know what's going on with them when take, in taking into account their sleep, their, um, you know, their diet, their nutrition, all of that, their, their DNA, all of that. And so the way we think about it is Rupa allows for personalized medicine to become a reality in a way that if you're going to the doctor, you do not like the person on the other end already knows what's going on with you and can diagnose effectively. It's kind of just what we all want, but yeah, it's, it's on, it's just as simple as what I was, what I had mentioned earlier around Rupa is eliciting root cause medicine as the standard of care for the future. Awesome. Any other advice for aspiring founders? Oh man, it's a ride. Do it. It'll be the best ride of your life. I think that one of the, one of the things that has been so fun to see, not only in me, but our team is the level of growth and like personal growth. 
that every single person goes through because an hour feels like a day, a day feels like a week, a week feels like a month, a month feels like a year and you're growing that fast. And it's been, it's been so rewarding to see that in myself and see that in our team. So I just, I'm so excited for people who go on this journey and are, are scared and do it anyway. And are the, you know, men and women in the arena. Scared and do it anyway. That's the definition of courage. I love it. Yeah. Where can people follow you online? Anywhere, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn. I'm pretty, uh, I'm, I'm awful at email, but outside of that, I'm pretty accessible. And I love talking to other founders, definitely. And I'm, I'm always happy to be helpful if, if possible. But um, all, all the socials, and then I have a personal website that needs to be updated. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Miles. Good to talk to you. If you liked what you heard today on the podcast, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player. And please give us a rating and review. The reviews help others find us. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and you can follow me on LinkedIn. Be sure to visit our website, startupsforgood.com. That's Startups for Good, all run together, no spaces, .com. If you were inspired today and want to join our online community or our giving circle, please do so on our website.